0: This morning, uh, we're going to be continuing our series, walking through the Sermon on the Mount. So, uh, if you've got your Bible, and I hope you do, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 48. If you didn't bring a Bible, there should be Bibles in the pew back in front of you. You're welcome to grab one of those and follow along there. Uh, The the scripture will also be on the screen behind me as well, so you can follow along. So, I'm going to read the text, and then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump in this morning. Matthew 5. Verses 38 to 48, this is God's word. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. This is a challenging passage. It's a beautiful passage. God, it's it's a clear command in your word, which we often struggle uh, to, uh, to apply to our lives. And so I pray that you would help us as your people to do that this morning. Lord, I pray that you would shine the light of your word into the deepest corners of our heart to expose ways in which we are not showing kindness and compassion to those who mistreat us. and and and, and to show us ways in which we are not loving our enemies. And I pray that you would help us to do so by reminding us and opening our eyes to the reality that this is precisely the way that you have loved us, O God. Christ died for his enemies. Christ died for us even while we were still sinners. Lord. Open our spiritual eyes to the, just the astounding reality that that is. May every person in this room see just how good you are, just how compassionate you are, just how merciful you are. And may that melt our hearts to cause us to have mercy and compassion and love for those who mistreat us and those who oppose us. So that we can be like Jesus and bring you much glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. <coughs> So, uh, this morning's text is one of the more well-known portions of the Sermon on the Mount. Common phrases that you know you'll hear in the world today, like "turn the other cheek" or "go the extra mile," come straight from this passage right here. And this passage contains, I think, some of the most glorious teaching in all of the New Testament. Um, and we've been we've been saying all along that throughout the series that the Sermon on the Mount is a description of the true disciple, of the true king. In other words, if you want to know how a disciple of Jesus is supposed to live, read the Sermon on the Mount. It's easy to see how living out Jesus' commands here in this text uh, is a beautiful thing. I mean, if everybody were to live like this, the world would be a much better place, wouldn't it? It really would. And yet, as glorious as this passage is, these are probably the most difficult commands to apply in the Christian life. Nothing is harder than turning the other cheek and loving your enemy. And not only is this passage difficult to apply, but it's also commonly misunderstood. This text deals with with two fundamental questions, I think. First, as a follower of Jesus, how am I obligated to respond when someone mistreats me? How am I obligated to respond? And the second question is, as a follower of Jesus, who am I commanded to love? How am I obligated to respond when someone mistreats me and who am I commanded to love? So we're going to look at Jesus's shocking answers to these questions and then we're going to spend some time thinking about what it practically means for our everyday lives as followers of Jesus and how we can possibly obey these commands that feel so far out of our grasp. The main point of this morning's message is that true disciples love others no matter what they do and no matter who they are true disciples love others no matter what they do and no matter who they are and those are our two points so we're just going to take them one at a time first true disciples love others no matter what they do that's what Jesus covers in verses 38 to 42 here he says you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth but but I say to you do not resist the one who is evil. Now that, that phrase there, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, is uh, called the law of retaliation, or in Latin, lex talionis. It's, um, it's found in uh, the, the Pentateuch, the book of Exodus, and Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. Uh, it's actually straight from God's Word. And uh, the, the basic point of this law is that the punishment ought to fit the crime. So the intention of this law was to justly punish wickedness while preventing personal retaliation or vengeful excess. And, it, and the law was to be enforced by governing authorities, not carried out by rogue individuals seeking you know, personal vendettas. But what was happening in Jesus' day is that the religious authorities had taken this good law and begun to twist its interpretation And they were using it as a justification to permit personal revenge, bitterness, and unforgiveness. So basically they were taking this law and they were saying, Hey, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. If somebody smacks you, smack them right back. Hit them right back. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Go get you your pound of flesh. Give them a taste of their own medicine. So the net result was that this law that God had given to uphold justice and to mitigate anger and violence was actually subverting justice and inflaming violence and division and anger. They literally flipped it on its head. And so Jesus steps in to correct this gross misinterpretation of God's law and to explain how a true disciple is supposed to respond to mistreatment. And he he begins by saying, do not resist the one who is evil. Now, Jesus is not saying here that you should not defend yourself or others who are in danger. Being a disciple of Jesus does not mean being a punching bag or a doormat. Think about the Apostle Paul. You know, he, he willingly suffered for the sake of the gospel. We, but we see many times in the book of Acts where he escaped persecution when he had the opportunity. He wasn't a glutton for punishment, like he was just looking for ways to suffer. If you are in danger, you should flee if you can. And similarly, because life is precious, life should be reasonably defended. So, for example, if someone breaks into your home and threatens your family, you should take reasonable measures to defend them. Or if you see an old lady being robbed on the street, you should do what you can to come to the aid of the helpless and the defenseless. But you should not take revenge out on the perpetrator. The carrying out of justice is to be left in God's hands. Romans chapter 13 explains that governing authorities are put in place by God to execute justice on his behalf. And even where governing authorities fail, which they often do, oftentimes governing authorities fail to carry out true justice, but where they do, we can have confidence that God is the just judge who will righteously judge the earth on the last day. Every wrong will be righted. Every debt will be paid. Every sin will be punished. So even when governing authorities fail, we do not need to take things into our own hands. We trust God as the judge. Psalm 37, 12, and 13 says, The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The day is coming for the wicked, friends, which means we do not need to carry out personal vengeance and justice. The point is that Christians are not to repay evil for evil. Rather, we are to repay evil with good. And then Jesus illustrates with three examples. First, he says, if, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. And This kind of slap that Jesus is referring to was was a backhanded slap meant as an insult. So it was one of the most insulting things you could do to somebody. It still is today. That would still be pretty insulting today. That's kind of cross-cultural, isn't it? Like, I don't know if there's a culture where you can backhand someone and it's like, hey, man, you're, you're great. I love you. But in Jesus' day, people were using God's word as a justification to hit back, right? Like, it was just kind of, okay, well, you hit me, I'm going to hit you. You know, as you think about it, there's really nothing new under the sun, is there? In the world's eyes today, it's perfectly reasonable to insult somebody right back if they insult you. Did somebody disparage you online? Get, right back, get your Twitter fingers ready and go and shoot off an insult towards them, right? somebody flip you off in traffic? Give them the bird right back. Did a coworker badmouth your job performance at work? Well, go and slander them to all your other friends and coworkers. Right, that's, just, that's normal to the world. It's almost what's expected. The world does all of this without so much as a, a second thought. It's just assumed that this is an appropriate response when someone disrespects you. But Jesus calls Christians to a completely different response. He says that we should turn the other cheek, meaning we should refuse to insult them back. We should resist the urge, pass up the opportunity... To insult back when we're insulted. The second example that Jesus gives is, if someone sues you for your tunic, give him your cloak as well. The tunic was the inner garment and the cloak was the heavier, more essential garment. So this is really kind of a, a radical thing Jesus is proposing. I mean, you're getting sued for your less valuable garment. And he says, go ahead and let them have that and then give them your even more valuable garment in addition. Instead of fighting for your own rights, give them your cloak as well. And this goes a step beyond turning the other cheek. This is a call to bless the person who treats you unjustly. It'd be something like being falsely accused of stealing $100, and rather than going to battle over it and trying to defend your rights, you give the accuser an extra $200 and say, Go in peace, friend. That's not normal in the world. That's not normal but it should be normal for Christians. We're prone to demand that our own rights be respected, but Jesus calls us to spend our energy on serving others rather than on defending our own rights. I'm going to say that again. Jesus calls us to spend our energy on serving others rather than defending our own rights. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul reprimanded the church because... Church members were suing each other over financial disputes and he said in 1 Corinthians 6-7 he said to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Paul's saying it's better to suffer wrong than to enter into an escalating conflict with someone that's going to cause division. Just let it go. Take the loss. Now is, is Scripture teaching that justice doesn't matter for Christians? That we should just give up this whole idea that we're ever going to get justice and that we should just let people walk over us and that we never have uh, the right to be restored out for what we've been cheated out of? No, I don't, I don't think so. I think the point here is that the unity of the church and the soul of that other person is way more important than whether or not you get your money back. It's a matter of priorities, right? What's more important, their soul, unity of the church, or me getting my rights? Doggone it. I deserve my money back, and I'm willing to tear apart the church. I'm willing to lose relationships to get what I deserve, to get what I have coming to me. This is what it looks like to die to yourself and to live for God's glory and the good of others. It's to put the unity of the church. It's to put the soul of the other person ahead of your own rights. When Jesus came, he said he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is just amazing because though Jesus is the sooner the center of the universe, he laid down his right to be treated as the center of the universe. That's what meekness is. And we, on the other hand, are not the center of the universe, and yet we like to pretend that we are. At times, we can be so eager to defend our own rights that we're willing to make an enemy of a family member or a fellow church member just to defend our rights. Entire churches have been split due to pride like this. Sadly, even marriages and families get broken apart over this selfish pride. Those whose lives have been changed by the gospel are called to an entirely new way of living life. We're called to no longer live for ourselves, for our rights and for our glory. We're called to live for God and His glory. Our energy must be spent not on defending our rights but on serving others because relationships are far more important than our rights. Relationships are more important than our rights, our relationship with God and our relationships with one another. The third example that Jesus gives is if a soldier force, if someone forces you to carry gear for one mile, carry it for two. So let me help make sense of this. In, in Jesus' day, Israel lived under Roman occupation. And at any time, a Roman soldier could stop a Jew and force them to carry his gear for one mile in any direction. Just think about how frustrating this would be. Try to put yourself here in the shoes of a person like this. A foreign nation invades your homeland and you become a second-class citizen in your own country. And then at any time, you may be running an important errand. You might be taking your child to the doctor and a Roman soldier can come up to you and force you to, tear, to carry his heavy pack one mile in the complete opposite direction towards which you were going. And you have to do it. The alternative would be worse. Our default in that scenario would be to probably begrudgingly carry his pack while we muttered curses under our breath about how much we can't stand the Romans, right? Maybe we try to even subtly kick a little sand on him when we're walking behind him while we're carrying his pack. But it's into this situation that Jesus says, after you've walked the first mile, offer to go another mile in the wrong direction from which you were going, just because. This is nothing other than grace. Not only is Jesus calling us not to retaliate, He's calling us to bless those who mistreat us, to go the extra mile. He's calling us to extend kindness to those who don't deserve it. How do do you respond When you feel disrespected, or when you feel that your rights have been violated, or when you feel taken advantage of, how do you respond in those moments? If we're honest, we tend to expect much more grace for our own transgressions while giving others much less grace when they sin against us, don't we? It's almost like we have a higher standard for righteousness than other people than we do for ourselves. Why is that? I think it's because we, put, we have a tendency to put self at the center of our lives. The greatest sin anyone could commit is a sin against me. Right? In our pride, we set ourselves up as, as almost godlike figures whose wills should always be heeded and who are ready to strike with anger anyone who transgresses us. And the selfish pride must be rooted out of followers of Jesus. It's wicked. There's, and there's two things I think that need to happen if we're going to respond in the way that Jesus calls us to. I think the first thing is that we need to remember that this is how Jesus has served us and loved us. Listen to 1 Peter 2, 21 to 24. says, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you And the reality is that if true justice had been served against us, we would all be condemned. What we deserve for our sin is death. But Jesus came so that he could be mistreated on our behalf. He was completely innocent, but he didn't clamor for his own rights. He didn't call down lightning bolts on his persecutors as they mocked him while he hung on the cross. He meekly and silently endured the cross for you and for me, so that we could be forgiven of our sin. And not only so that we could be forgiven, but so that we could be changed. So that we could follow in His steps. That is the life that we've been called to. When when we refuse to turn the other cheek as Christians, we're functioning as if we don't believe the gospel. If that sounds like hyperbole, consider the parable of the unforgiving servant that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 18. In this parable, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven could be compared to a master who called his servants together, to to call his servants to account, to handle their debts. And he called one particular servant who owed a very great sum, 10,000 talents. To put this into perspective, one talent was about 20 years worth of wages, so this servant was in debt 200,000 years worth of wages. In other words, this was an impossibly high debt that he could never pay back. The master summons the servant and says, it's time for you to pay me what you owe. And the servant falls to his knees and pleads for mercy. He says, oh master, please give me more time and I promise I'll pay you what you owe. It's it's almost kind of... A little bit funny and sad that he was asking for more time because there's no way that the servant could ever pay back this debt. Even if the master gave him the rest of his life to pay it back, he's never going to pay back a 200,000 years worth of wages debt. But when this servant fell to his knees and pleaded with more time, the master's heart melted with compassion and he forgave the debt of this servant. Not only did he just, he didn't just give him more time, he just removed the debt completely. He took the debt on himself and he said, you're free to go, your debt is gone. And immediately this first servant went out and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. 100 denarii was about 20 weeks worth of wages, so nothing to sneeze at, but certainly nothing as significant as 200,000 years worth of wages. But he grabbed his fellow servant who owed him 100 denarii and he said, "Pay me what you owe." And his fellow servant fell down before him and said, "Oh, please be merciful to me. Just give me more time and I'll promise I'll pay the debt." And he said, "You don't have more time," and he refused. And he had his fellow servant and his family thrown into debtors' prison until he could pay the debt. Now the rest of the servants when they saw this, they were distressed. They were grieved and they went and they told the master what this first servant has done, and the master was furious. And he, he summoned this first servant and he said, you wicked, wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant who is indebted to you? And the master had that first servant thrown into prison until he should pay off all of his entire debt. And Jesus summarized the parable by saying, So shall my Father do to every one of you who does not forgive his brother from his heart. If we refuse to show mercy to others, it's evidence that our own hearts have not yet been changed by God's mercy. Are you showing mercy to the people in your life? To your family members? How do you respond when you feel disrespected by your spouse? Or when you feel overlooked by your spouse or when you feel insulted by your children? Are you showing mercy inside your home? When your spouse does something that agitates you, don't pay them back with a snarky comment or a cold shoulder. All you're doing in that moment is punishing them for their audacity to violate your will. As if the blood of Jesus wasn't enough to cover your spouse's sin. It is. You don't need to punish your spouse. Christ died for their sins. Or if a fellow church member says something about you behind your back, is that wrong? Of course it's wrong. But don't draw up battle lines and stubbornly dig in your heels for a cold war. Look for an opportunity to bless them because love covers a multitude of sins. The church is supposed to be the place where the love of Christ is visibly seen by the world, where we act differently than the world around us. So we should not have division and fights and bickering among us in the church or in a Christian home. We're to look, live and look differently. Now, this is it's not easy. I'm not saying this is easy. It's incredibly difficult to bless those who curse us. And it's It's actually impossible to do in our own strength. But the good news is that not only did Jesus die for us, but He rose from the dead. And because of that, He has sent His Holy Spirit into our hearts to empower us and to energize us to live like Jesus. To do what we couldn't do on our own. Paul says, by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body. You don't have to try to find it within yourself to want to bless those who mistreat you. That's not a natural human reaction. What you need to do is confess where you have failed at this point and then ask God to help you change. And recognize that it's not an easy process and it's not a quick process. But God is faithful and good and he promises to finish the work of sanctification in each one of us. I said there are two things that need to happen for us to respond like Jesus calls you to. The second thing is that not only do we need to remember that this is the way that God has loved us, but we need to die to ourselves and live for the glory of God. We need to die to ourselves and live for the glory of God. Here's what I mean. If if you are walking around your day-to-day life and you are always focused on my rights, my needs, my honor, my glory then you will always be controlled by how other people treat you. You'll always be controlled by how other people treat you. Because if someone insults you or assaults you, it'll throw you into a depression or a fit of anger because what's most important to you, your rights, your needs, your glory is now threatened. But 2 Corinthians 5.15 says that Christ died for us so that we would no longer live for ourselves but for Him who for our sake died and was raised. So it's his honor, it's his glory that we're concerned with that has top priority in our life. And if, if that's your aim, then when someone insults you, for example, it's actually an opportunity to bring him more glory by following the example of Jesus and turning the other cheek. Because when you do that, you're putting the character of Christ on display for all to see and you're glorifying him. So this person's insult goes from being something that threatened what you loved the most to actually being an opportunity to magnify what you love most, which is God's glory. Do you guys, are you tracking with me? Do you see what I'm saying? It flips it on its head. Because you're not living, you're not concerned with your glory. You're not concerned with your rights. You're concerned with God's glory. So I can lay down my rights and I can be insulted and it's just an opportunity to magnify Christ even more. And I'm no longer controlled by how other people are treating me. My joy doesn't rise or fall based on the circumstances around me. I can rejoice even in the midst of my sufferings. How many of you want to live like that? How many of you want to be able to rejoice always? That's how. We've got to die to ourselves and live to the glory of God. Perhaps you need to put to death your desire to live for your rights, or your needs, or your glory This morning, and live for something better, the glory of God. True disciples love others no matter what they do. But Jesus also says that true disciples love others no matter who they are. He says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is the the second uh, half of this passage, and I'm not going to spend as long on this part of the passage because we've already, there is some overlap here, but I do want to take a few minutes to look at verses 43 to 48. So the religious leaders of the day had had taken God's command to love your neighbor and added hate your enemy onto the end of it. That's not in the Bible. God never said, hate your enemy. It's never good, by the way, to add to God's word, okay? Just heads up, So just in case anybody's confused about that. Essentially, what the religious leaders of the day were teaching is that the only people you are obligated to love are the people who are like you and people who like you. But Jesus says, nope, not only are you to love your neighbor, you are to love your enemy and to pray for those who persecute you. This is a step beyond merely doing good to those who mistreat you. Because a friend might mistreat you. Your spouse might mistreat you. But an enemy is someone, someone who is fundamentally opposed to you. An enemy is someone who intends you harm. And the kind of love that Jesus calls us to love our enemies with here is agape love. Agape love is committed to sacrificing self for the benefit of the other. And Jesus says that we are to consider the good of our enemy before our own and to even be willing to suffer loss to do good to our enemy. Just think about that again for a second. Jesus is calling us to a kind of love that is even willing to suffer personal loss to do good to our enemy. That's a striking statement. And it seems almost impossible. But in verses 45 to 47, Jesus gives us the reason why. He says, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. That's why you ought to do this, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Jesus commands Christians to live this way because this is what God is like. God's very nature is love. He does not love because of something outside of himself that prompts him to do so, his very nature is to do good, even to his enemies. God demonstrates this in the way that He makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Just think about that. Every single day, God's abundant mercy and steadfast love is on full display for everyone to see. In a world with sin where people blaspheme God and ignore His commands, He continues to patiently send good things. God caused the sun to rise this morning and he's going to send rain later on this afternoon on the people today who are protesting their right to be able to murder children in the womb in Washington, D.C. today. He's going he's to he's cause the sun to rise on them today and tomorrow and he's going to send rain. This is called common grace and it's on display every single day. But God has gone much further than that in demonstrating the depths of his love to his enemies. And for Christians, we are the recipients of God's particular grace. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 and 10 describe it. says that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then verse 10 goes on to say that while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Jesus' death on the cross for His enemies is the ultimate display of self-sacrificial love. God did not give His only begotten Son to die for a lovely people who deserved it. God gave His only begotten Son to die for His enemies, for you and for me. He died for us, He removed our sin, and then adopted us as sons and co-heirs who will inherit the new heavens and the new earth with Christ. And Jesus says that is how you are to treat even your worst enemies. You are to do them good. You are to lay yourselves down for them. In fact, Jesus says that if you don't love your enemies, then you're no different than the ungodly. Even the tax collectors love those who love them. That's easy, right? It's easy to love people who love you. It's easy to greet your brothers who you're good with. What marks a genuine Christian... What sets apart Christians from the world is a love for enemies that's how you will bear the resemblance to your father in heaven so how do you how do you see the person from the other political party how do you view them is your default to kind of get defensive and draw up battle lines and see them as a threat how do you see the person who calls you a bigot because you hold to a biblical view of marriage and sexuality? Is your defensive posture your first response? When we moved into this building last year in September, some of our neighbors went onto our website and discovered that we hold to a biblical view of marriage and sexuality. And as a result, we received a number of nasty emails and comments online. And uh, there was even sort of a, I don't know, uh, they, uh, several of the neighbors got together in silent protest and put pride flags up in response to our moving into the neighborhood. So how how are we called as a church as a church to respond to that? What does love demand of us? Love, and Jesus demands that we seek every opportunity to do them good. Every opportunity. We're not going to change our message so that our neighbors will stop calling us bigots. We're going to continue to preach the whole counsel of God because God has called us to tell the truth. In fact, we believe that the most loving thing we could do is to tell the truth. But we are going to seek every opportunity to serve them and to do them good, even at personal cost to us, because that's what our Father in heaven is like. Rather than seeing the person who's calling you a bigot or the person from the other political party as a threat, we need to see them as people made in God's image. They are people who desperately need to hear the gospel. Apart from Christ, they're going to spend eternity in hell. And we must tell them about Christ and we must show them the love of Christ by loving them even when they mistreat us. And if you think about it, what... Better testimony could there possibly be to the gospel, to our enemies, than to love them when they hate us? What could possibly be a clearer picture of the love of Christ who died for his enemies? I can't think of one. So when our enemies call us names or insult us or persecute us or anything like that, it's actually a golden opportunity to share and to show the, gospel, the love of Christ and the gospel to them. It's the perfect opportunity to do so. And here's the deal. In reality, like, you think about how, how it's easy for us to have this defensive posture and we start to feel threatened. We're not in, just think about what you believe. Think about the gospel. Like, there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And Christ is risen from the dead. Your future is secure. Like, you're going to live with God forever. You're going to be raised bodily from the dead. It, we're not in any danger at all. We don't need to see those who oppose us as a threat because our future is secure. But those who oppose us and and the gospel message are in grave danger. And our hearts should melt with compassion for them. Nothing nothing in the Christian life is more difficult or more Jesus-like than to love our enemies and to show kindness in response to mistreatment. I've been discovering this uh, firsthand since we adopted three children this past year. And I'm often faced with situations where I must show kindness and mercy in response to mistreatment. And I often fail. I often fail. C.S. Lewis has a, a famous quote that has just become very real to me. The longer I walk with Jesus, the more real this becomes. He says, no man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. And when you start trying to apply Matthew 5:38 to 48 in your life, uh, you will discover just how deep sin runs in your heart. It runs very deep. The good news is that our Father in heaven is so patient and so kind, and he is committed to making us holy and righteous. That last verse there, verse 48, he, Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect, just as your heavenly Father is perfect. That word perfect, I think, actually would be better translated complete or mature because that's how it's translated in other parts of the New Testament. The idea isn't flawless, right, Or, or faultless. The idea here is coming to completion, completely mature in our mercy and in our love. Jesus intends for his disciples to become mature in love and mercy, and God is committed to finishing this work in us. He's removing every last bit of sin and selfishness from our hearts until we love with a perfect love. That's what Christians are called to aim for with God's help. Philippians 2 12 and 13 kind of is one of my favorite verses that describes this paradox where Paul says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So. God is the one that's energizing us, that's empowering us to become more like Christ, but we must also make the effort to put to death the deeds of the body, to put to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit. And this process will take a lifetime. If if you're a Christian and you're here this morning and you are not serving those who mistreat you or loving your enemies, let me just give you four practical things as we close, the four R's. First, recognize that this is a serious sin. It's not okay to make peace with it. As Andrew said uh, in a sermon a few weeks ago, we need to call sin what it is. It's hypocritical to say that you are saved by grace and to withhold grace from others. It's not okay and we can't make peace with that sin. The evidence that you are, in fact, a born-again Christian is that you will grow in your capacity to turn the other cheek and to love your enemy. So first, recognize that this is a serious sin, to remember that your sin is covered by the blood of Jesus. You do not have to crawl into a hole in shame in response to your failures. And trust me, I have felt tempted to do that many times over the past year, where I've just felt like an utter failure as a dad, as an utter failure to be able to love my children. But my wife consistently points me back to this truth, and I constantly point this back, her back to this truth whenever she needs it, that Christ died for sinners like me that my sin is covered by the blood of Jesus. Let's not forget that it is God who has first loved us in this radical way. We've insulted him 10,000 times, 10,000 times, and he responds with mercy and grace again and again. If you are in Christ, God has put your sin into the bottom of the sea, never to be brought up again. It's knowing this, man, that's so key to know and understand that and plead with God to let that truth sink into your heart because that's really what's going to set you free to be able to love your enemies and to treat with kindness those who mistreat you. You've got to see that that's how God is towards you. You've got to receive that grace in your heart and let it change your heart. If you're having a hard time getting it from here to here, start praying and pleading with God to do that in you. He'll do it, but be careful when you pray prayers like that because he's also going to start putting you in opportunities where you get to exercise that muscle of loving your enemies of treating, of responding to evil with good. And it's hard and it's messy sometimes. But God is committed to finishing this work in you so that you are mature in mercy and love. So recognize that the sin is serious. Remember your sin is covered by the blood of Jesus. Rely on God's power through the Holy Spirit. I kind of got ahead of myself again. Pray, right? When Jesus says pray for those who persecute you, yes, pray that God would bless them and also pray that God would help you to love them because you're going to need to pray that maybe multiple times a day. Recognize, remember, rely, and then last, reach out for help and accountability. Ask for prayer. Ask for accountability. Bitterness and unforgiveness and anger are just as deadly to your soul as sexual immorality. So if you know you need to go seek accountability if you're struggling with sexual sin, go seek accountability if you're struggling to love your enemy. Or if you're struggling because you keep lashing out at your family members whenever they cross you, and you're just always angry at them and things like, like, that's not good. So let's come and get help. And we want to pray with you. And we're not going to meet you with judgment because we struggle with the same sin. And we want to help you and walk with you and be there with you every step of the way. And we will. James 5 says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. You want to be healed of bitterness and unforgiveness and anger? Confess it. Confess it to one another and pray for one another. And God will heal He will heal. So come and talk to one of us. Man, myself, Thomas, Doug, Chad, one of your, you have pastors here who would be glad to meet with you, glad to pray with you, glad to walk with you through this. If you've got a disciple maker, talk to your disciple maker. If you're not in discipleship and you don't have a disciple maker, come talk to us about that and we'll help get you into a discipleship relationship so that you can begin walking through these issues and growing into this Christ-likeness that God calls us to. We can't do that alone. We've got a track set up here at Pillar DC. We, make, we try to make discipleship as easy and simple as we possibly can. We want to take all the mystery out of it. So if you want to grow in Christlikeness, we will help you do it. We will help you do it. Come and talk to us about it. With God's help, we need to strive to apply Jesus' teaching to our lives because true disciples love others no matter what they do and no matter who they are. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. Um... And they're going to make their way up. And in just a moment, we're going to sing a closing song. And as we do, uh, perhaps you need to pray with somebody. Um, maybe there's some sin in your life that you need to confess. Maybe you need to do what I just talked to you about. And you're just like, Jared, I, I really have been struggling with unforgiveness or bitterness. Or I'm in I'm a place right now where I'm just being persecuted by somebody at work. Or thing, and I just need God's help and God's strength to get me through this time. Come and, and we would love to pray for you. We're gonna have prayer counselors at the back. They'd be glad to pray with you. And maybe you're here this morning and you're not sure that you're actually a Christian. You're not sure that you're born again, and in and, and maybe today for the first time you're seeing with with clear sight this God who sent his son to die even for his enemies. Maybe today you want to trust in him and surrender your life into his hands and you want to be forgiven because you're recognizing you've been an enemy of God thus far. I invite you to come and to confess your sin this morning to turn from it and to place your trust in Christ and God will forgive your sin. He will remove it as far as the east is from the west. God is so good. His love for his enemies knows no bounds and he will not reject a broken or repentant heart. I want to invite you to do that. If If you know God's calling you to do that this morning, please come and pray with one of us there in the back. We'd love to help you take next steps in beginning to follow Jesus.